Welcome to a special edition of the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. My name is David Leopold, and I'm the creative director of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And today, we're going to focus on a new exhibition that we just installed at the Venerable Harmony Club in New York. This is a special exhibition made exclusively for the members of the club, and it includes 24 pieces that cover the wide range of Hirschfeld's career. So to go tell you a little bit about Hirschfeld, Al Hirschfeld's drawing stand is one of the most innovative attempts in establishing the visual language of modern art through caricature in the 20th century. A self-described characterist, his signature work, defined by a linear calligraphic style, appeared in virtually every major publication of the last nine decades, including a 75-year relationship with the New York Times, where his drawings appeared on average every other week for 75 years, and as well as numerous books and record covers and 15 postage stamps. Hirschfeld said his contribution was to take the character created by the playwright and portrayed by the actor and reinvent it for the reader. Playwright Terence McNally wrote, quote, no one writes more accurately on the performing arts than Al Hirschfeld. He accomplishes on a blank page with his pen and ink in a few strokes what many of us need a lifetime of words to say, unquote. He is represented in many public collections, including the Metropolitan, the Whitney, the Museum of Modern Art, the National Portrait Gallery, and Harvard's Theater Collection. Hirschfeld authored several books, including Manhattan Oasis and Show Business is No Business, in addition to 10 collections of his work. He was declared a living landmark by the New York City Landmarks Commission in 1996 and a living legend by the Library of Congress in 2000. Just before his death in January 2003, he learned he was to be awarded the Medal of Arts from the National Endowment of the Arts and inducted into the Academy of Arts and Letters. The winner of two Tony Awards, he was given the ultimate Broadway accolade on what would have been his 100th birthday in June 2003. The Martin Beck Theater was renamed the Al Hirschfeld Theater. We're going to take a tour through the two different spaces that the Hirschfeld artwork is in at the Harmony Club. We're going to start in the library, which you see as right as you come in. And the first piece I want to talk about is George and Ira Gershwin, an etching of the brothers that is over the fireplace. This etching was done in 1990, and it represents uh, two of the most important songwriters of the 20th century. Uh, and they were friends of Hirschfeld going back to their boyhood days. They all grew up in Washington Heights, and Hirschfeld would record a good part of their career and was great friends with both of them. In fact, it was Hirschfeld who introduced George Gershwin to Oscar Levant. And over the years, he and Ira Gershwin were quite good friends and gave each other copies of their books with very warm inscriptions on it. Um, this print is unique because the printmaker, the master printmaker that Hirschfeld was working with, Emilio uh, Sorini, um, created a etching plate in the shape of a piano, which is, of course, very appropriate for the Gershwins. As you turn to the left, you'll see Ella Fitzgerald, a wonderful 1993 uh, lithograph. Um, Hirschfeld's uh, uh, experience with Ella Fitzgerald goes back to 1934 when she was in one of the first uh, talent nights at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. 
Hirschfeld was in the audience and said to his uh, date that night, the musical comedy actress, Paula Lawrence, that he thought she was pretty good and, you know, might become something. And of course he was right. Uh, She was the first lady of song in many respects. And Hirschfeld drew an incredible portrait of her that only he could do, where one line seems to create her whole body. We see everything there, although if you look at it closely, there's almost nothing there. Yet that's one of the geniuses of Hirschfeld's work is he he allows us to fill in so many of the details. Then we have Fred Astaire, uh, an etching from 1973. Uh, Fred Astaire is, I think, very much like Hirschfeld. And in fact, Jules Pfeiffer one time said that uh, Hirschfeld was the Fred Astaire of drawing. Um, Fred Astaire, uh, like Hirschfeld, makes everything look easy. We look at Hirschfeld's drawings and they seem like Well, of course, this is so simple. It's just one stroke here, one stroke there. Just like Fred Astaire made his dancing with Ginger Rogers or whoever he was dancing with look to be so easy. But like Hirschfeld, Astaire admitted that it was a product of a lot of hard work. He said that uh, 90% of his work was perspiration uh, and 10% of it was inspiration. I think Hirschfeld was much more on the inspiration side, um, but and he didn't see his drawings or his prints as work. He said the only work that he ever did was in his garden. Then we have Mick Jagger, a 1999 lithograph. Uh, now, of course, Hirschfeld did not have the same relationship with Mick Jagger that a lot of people, say, under the age of 70 today would have. Um, yet he understood what Mick Jagger was about. Hirschfeld studied people. That was the thing that interested him. And he did this drawing originally for Rolling Stone magazine. They understood that Hirschfeld could capture a performer better than anybody. And again, in just a few strokes, he captures the sort of bravado and the the sort of stage domineering presence that Mick Jagger has. And again, in a way that's so fluid and graceful, it's hard not to just get caught up in the drawing. And then across from that, we have uh, Liza Minnelli. Um, now, uh, again, a few simple strokes. This one, each stroke is in a different color. Um, it was a wonderful 1999 uh, lithograph uh, that he created of Liza. This originally appeared in the New York Times when she was in a show called Minnelli on Minnelli. Um, Hirschfeld had had a long relationship with Liza's family. Uh, He knew Vincent Minnelli when uh, Vincent was just starting out on Broadway in the 1930s. And he drew, and Hirschfeld drew many of uh, Vincent Minnelli's early stage shows. Uh, He drew Liza's mother, Judy Garland, uh, as early as 1939, when he did uh, five of the six posters for the original release of The Wizard of Oz. Um, he had been drawing Liza from the very beginning of his career, and I think Hirschfeld may be one of those people who was at all of her weddings. Uh, we have My Fair Lady in the middle of Mick Jagger and Liza Minnelli, and uh, this is a uh, etching of a 1956 drawing featuring Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews. Uh, Stanley Holloway is seen in the back left. Uh, now, the funny thing about this show is in 1938, there was an MGM film of Pygmalion, and Hirschfeld did the posters and the theater installations uh, for this film, and it was a great film. In fact, Shaw helped write the script and won an Oscar for it. 
when Hirschfeld found that his friend Moss Hart was going to be directing a production of a musical version of Pygmalion, he stayed up till four o'clock in the morning trying to explain to Moss that you could not improve Pygmalion with songs and dances. And of course, it became a big flop known as My Fair Lady. In another ironic twist, uh, the producers, as the show was about ready to open on Broadway, approached Hirschfeld to create uh, what is now the iconic poster art uh, for the play, for the musical. Uh, It was showing George Bernard Shaw uh, working marionettes of Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison. This became such an identifiable piece of uh, the show that for decades, every time the production was done, they used a variation of this artwork um, uh, wherever the show was being done. Then we come to the original Broadway production of Les Mis. Uh, this is a lithograph from 1987 when it opened on Broadway, and this is a very rare artist proof in which the background is all blue. It's one of the very few uh, prints in this edition that has this blue background. Um, It captures, of course, all the great activity uh, of the show. Um, And like so many Hirschfeld cast drawings, it captures so much of the action of the show, but it doesn't tell you anything about the plot. Um, So it doesn't give anything away. You never need a spoiler alert with a Hirschfeld drawing. But you can be guaranteed that this is what the show feels like. And uh, it, certainly with this piece, he captures the excitement and the, the drama and the crowd scenes and sort of all the great things that we love about Les Mis. Then as we get over to the bookshelves, there are four pieces. Each one is uh, a really wonderful piece. Uh, in the corner, we have Carol Channing. This is a, a etching of a 1964 drawing of Carol Channing when she first appeared in Hello, Dolly. Um, if you asked Carol Channing about Hirschfeld, she would have told you that Hirschfeld gave her her career. She was in a uh, little review called London Ear uh, in 1948. And Hirschfeld, in addition to doing his cast drawings for the New York Times, would sometimes do drawings that that had different themes, like Mothers on Broadway or What's Cooking on Broadway, which showed the different people who were actually cooking on stage during a show. Um, So in early 1948, he did a drawing called Supporting Players Whose Numbers Stopped the Show. And while there was the woman singing Bally High from South Pacific and other shows, there was Carol Channing as the gladiola girl in a send-up of the 1920s, really one of the first times this was done because the 1920s was sort of recent history at that time. And uh, according to Carol Channing, uh, Anita Luz and Julie Stein saw the drawing in the paper and Anita Luz looked at it and says, that's my Lorelei. They went down to see Carol Channing in the show and were convinced that she would make the perfect lead for the musical adaptation of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And as they say, a star was born in that show. In 1964, when Hirschfeld saw uh, Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly, he had no way of knowing that that it was a career-defining role. And in fact, Hirschfeld was not Uh, going to do his drawings to pick the winners and the losers uh, to see who was good and who was bad. He was there as a visual journalist trying to capture the essence of the production in his own style. Uh, He went to Washington to uh, see uh, Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly, and he came away with this drawing that became so, so, was so definitive of her in this role, both 
he believed that it captured her in the role, and just as importantly, Carol Channing believed it captured her in the role, that the drawing would end up being used on posters for uh, her in Hello, Dolly for the next 30 years. Uh, then we have uh, uh, Elvis Presley, an etching uh, of a 1968 drawing. Uh, this was Elvis's comeback in 1968. Um, it's funny, Hirschfeld had drawn literally the very first caricature of Elvis in 1956 for Collier's Magazine. And here he was 13 years later, 12 years later, uh, drawing Elvis's comeback. Well, Hirschfeld had never needed to come back because he had all, he had found fame at a very young age when he was in his 20s, and he never lost his popularity or his audience, and actually just got better throughout his whole career. Well, he captured Elvis uh, performing in this show, and it has become a symbol of that of that comeback show as much as any recording has. Uh, next, we have Lena Horne. This is an etching of a 1952 drawing when she was in a Broadway show called Jamaica. Uh, he had been drawing Lena Horne since uh, she started doing films for MGM in the 1940s. Uh, oftentimes, he would do drawings of different people in the cast of the films and do a separate drawing of Lena Horne because MGM would frequently leave out the parts of films with African Americans when the films played in the South. Uh, he loved Lena Horne. Lena Horne was a great admirer of Hirschfeld as well, and uh, he drew her a number of times over the years. Next, we have Marlon Brando, uh, an etching from 1998. This is Brando and the Wild Ones. Um, it uh, really captures him in this role. Uh, Hirschfeld was, uh, had been drawing Brando since the very beginning of his career and would draw him through his great roles, uh, for instance, in The Godfather. Um, Brando represented the kind of actor that should have been the end of Hirschfeld's career, you know, when he started, uh, when Hirschfeld started, uh, he had these wonderful figures to work with, uh, Greta Garbo, uh, the Marx Brothers, um, Law and Hardy. Uh, according to Hirschfeld, they looked like their caricatures. They were um, larger-than-life figures that a caricaturist just simply had to uh, transcribe, and he had done his work. Well, starting in the 1940s with the plays by Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, and the method style of acting, uh, actors tried to look very much like and, and act like very normal people, just like people you know on the street. I mean, the characters that were being written um, in place at that time were average normal people. Uh, when we think of great stage characters, um, when you think of Laura Wingfield uh, from The Glass Menagerie, she's about the meekest character uh, on stage. But Hirschfeld was not really focused on their flamboyance, but really he was trying to capture the essence of their character. So no matter how big they played it or how small, he was all, the, even the meekest character like Laura Wingfield has a character in which uh, Hirschfeld could work with. And certainly a figure like Brando with his sort of smoldering uh, machismo was uh, something that was fodder for Hirschfeld's pen. And so while a lot of the great characters of the 1920s and early 1930s would end up disappearing because they weren't equipped to draw this new style of uh, drama and a new style of acting, Hirschfeld fit right in and his career uh, continued without a blip. 
Um, and then finally, over in the corner, I forgot to mention Albert Einstein. And I guess only in a Hirschfeld exhibition uh, can you forget to mention Albert Einstein. This is a 1994 etching. And... Uh, there's nothing uh, Hirschfeld, as far as I know, never met Einstein. But again, he was a character, and he he portrayed a great character. And Hirschfeld found that uh, plenty of material to draw, even if he wasn't trying to capture the theory of relativity or anything like that. Next, we go up to uh, the hub on the fourth floor. When you walk into the hub, the first thing you see is a Hirschfeld self-portrait, a lithograph from 1993. This work originally appeared in the pages of The New Yorker to celebrate Hirschfeld's 90th birthday uh, to go along with a short profile on him. It was the first time Hirschfeld had appeared in the pages of New Yorker, as he had been banned from the magazine in 1937. That same year, he had done a piece for Life magazine where he took photos of famous people and in a few strokes of his pen turned them into other famous people. It goes to the heart of what he does in caricature. Uh, he doesn't do Big Head's little body. He doesn't use an anatomical distortion in the same way that most caricatures use it. He does use exaggeration for to capture the personality of his subject. Um, and so he was showing that, the you know, uh, for instance, Jimmy Durante really did not have a big nose. And in a few strokes of his pen, he turned him into Al Smith. Well, he thought he would get complaints. He turned Mary Pickford into Hitler. He turned Gandhi into Oliver Hardy. But the only person to complain was uh, Harold Ross, the editor of The New Yorker. Hirschfeld had turned him into Joseph Stalin. And, and what Ross said was that Hirschfeld would never appear in the pages of The New Yorker. So in 1993, they commissioned this portrait, and a few months later, they asked if he would do a drawing for them. And I happened to talk to, them, to talk to the art director on the phone, and they wanted to know if Hirschfeld was available. And I said, well, it's really up to the magazine. He's been banned uh, from it. And when she asked, what was I talking about? I told her the story. She was mortified. And she said, do you think he would do something for us? Uh, you know, would he hold a grudge or something? And I said, if you cross his palm with silver, I'm pretty sure he will do a drawing for you, which he did do. He would actually do, uh, for the most part, color pieces for The New Yorker um, in the last uh, seven or eight years of his career, producing a nice little body of work. Um, but certainly this portrait uh, is one of the best later self-portraits that he did. Um, it was also used as the key art for the Oscar-nominated documentary, The Lion King, the Al Hirschfeld story, uh, a great film made by Susan Dreyfus. If you turn left and look over at the bar, you'll see three color works by Hirschfeld that seem a little bit different than the works that you're usually used to. Uh, strangely enough, these three pieces uh, of Artie Shaw, Frank Sinatra, and Hoagy Carmichael were originally drawn by were originally drawn for Seventeen magazine. In fact, the first two years of Seventeen magazine, every issue had a Hirschfeld drawing in it, and they were all musical figures, primarily jazz figures, who were the teen heroes at that time. Uh, Artie Shaw, he knew personally and was a friend. Um, I love these works because, again, like the Liza Minnelli downstairs, he, do he does these works uh, with uh, simple uh, lines, but all in different colors. The Artie Shaw is an original uh, pen and ink and watercolor. 
the Frank Sinatra is a lithograph of a 1946 drawing that appeared in this same series. Now, Sinatra was a big fan of Hirschfeld's. Uh, he thought that Hirschfeld represented New York City, especially during the 1940s and 1950s. Over the years, Hirschfeld would draw uh, Sinatra at least 45 times, starting when uh, he did a radio show on CBS, all the way up until the very end of his career. In fact, in 1962, uh, Sinatra called Hirschfeld and said, Listen, Al, I'm working on a new film. Why don't you come out and do some drawings? Hirschfeld had been doing a lot of work for United Artists, and this picture was being produced by United Artists. So Hirschfeld went out and did drawings on the set of The Manchurian Candidate. Um, Sinatra was also a very big collector of Hirschfeld's work and often purchased any new drawing of himself or of his friends. And then finally, we have Hoagy Carmichael. This is a uh, pen and ink and gouache on board from 1945. Hirschfeld liked this drawing a great deal, included it in uh, his book, The World of Hirschfeld, and uh, liked it enough that he had it hanging in his home, in his library, uh, almost from the time that it was created, from the late 40s up until the end of his life in 2003. Um, and then as we uh, go around uh, this particular area, we have a wonderful cast drawing of Julius Caesar from 1955. This was the first production of the American Shakespeare Festival in Connecticut, and it includes what is now considered a very starry cast, but at that time they were at the beginning of their career, and the cast included a very young Christopher Plummer, uh, Jack Palance, Roddy McDowell, uh, Herd Hatfield and Raymond Massey were the old hands at this time, but Polly Rolls was also at the beginning of her career, and Leora Dana was also a very young actress at this time. Um, and Hirschfeld, as you can see, if you look in the lower right by his signature, he lists the place that he saw the production. Uh, he would draw many different productions of Shakespeare over the years. That is sort of a recurring theme in Hirschfeld's work because, as you can imagine, there have been many uh, productions and revivals of Shakespeare's work during Hirschfeld's 82-year career. Next to that is four European plays on Broadway. This, was a, this is an original ink-on-board drawing from 1960. Uh, and it really captures a couple of really wonderful shows that were on Broadway at the same time. You have Angela Lansbury and Joan Plowright in A Taste of Honey, Elizabeth Seale and Irma LaDuce, uh, Anthony Quinn and Laurence Olivier in Beckett, and much of the cast of The Hostage from that same year. Um, again, this is much more of a theme drawing than a particular cast drawing of one production, um, and uh he would draw. He had been drawing Angela Lansbury uh, since she had been in MGM fi films in the 1940s. Uh, I think the earliest one is the Harvey Girls, uh, and uh, Olivier was actually a close friend of Hirschfeld's. Uh, and when Hirschfeld was in his 20s, um, when he was about 22, he went to Paris for the first time and took an eight-year lease on a studio with two Englishmen he had met in a uh, in a bar the night before. One of those uh, people was Roger Furse, who was a, a fine artist himself and would go on to become uh, Olivier's set designer for much of his career in England and primarily at the National Theatre. Um, and through Furse, uh, Hirschfeld got to know Olivier and at that time Vivian Lee um, uh, during much of uh, their, their time together.
This is a, a unique drawing that Hirschfeld had framed in, in his house for many years. Uh, then we, uh, as you stroll into the rest of the hub, uh, over by where uh, the maitre d' stand is, is a wonderful 1933 uh, lithograph of nine old men of the Supreme Court. Uh, this is uh, the court that Roosevelt wanted to pack uh, at the beginning of his term because he wanted to have more judges sympathetic uh, to the New Deal. Of course, he was unsuccessful in that. Um, but for Hirschfeld, uh, if you look at the bottom of this, he has a pencil inscription of the names of each, each of the justices and their age to give you a sense of how old the Supreme Court was at that time. This is a very rare and very classic piece of Hirschfeld's work and a piece that he was inordinately proud of. Uh, if there was one print from his early days that he talked about, it would be Nine Old Men of the Supreme Court. And it's, these editions are very small. There's only 50 of these prints in existence or that were ever made. Uh, the, the number of them that are in existence, I do not think is 50 at this point. Um, you could have bought it for $10 in 1937, which would have been a very wise choice at that time. Uh, but it's a wonderful piece, and it gives you a great opportunity to see how Hirschfeld, uh, in his early days, used lithographs to experiment with texture uh, and shading, which you don't get to see in his line drawings as much. Uh, as you go down the wall, you come upon Jerome Robbins Broadway, a lithograph from 1989. This is, was uh, to capture the Broadway show of the same name uh, that included many of the dances from... Uh, Robin's Broadway career. Uh, in here, you get to see Peter Pan, On the Town, Gypsy, uh, The King and I, uh, High Button Shoes, uh, and several others. It's, a, it's really a great show. West Side Story, of course, is in there. Um, and when Hirschfeld started to do this drawing, he said that he thought he should go back to his old drawings and sort of, in a sense, copy them. But then he realized that this was not a retrospective of the past, but these were showing the dances as dances themselves. And that he, so he restarted the drawing and captured just about everything you wanted. I mean, Jerome Robbins, uh, the Jerome Robbins Foundation thought that this drawing so captured uh, Robbins, they used it uh, to celebrate the Robbins Centennial. It was the logo of the Jerome Robbins Centennial in 2017. Um, across from that is uh, a terrific piece of the American Ballet Theater. Uh, this is a piece, uh, lithograph from 1980. And I happen to think that dancers are one of the places you could really capture the magic of Hirschfeld. The way that he makes the figures move is second to none. Animators from Disney on down, Pixar, whatever animation studio you can think of, study Hirschfeld's drawings for two reasons. First, they study how he he's so good at capturing character in so few lines, because for an animator, that's very, very important. And the other thing that they look at is how he makes the drawing move. Because Hirschfeld does in one drawing what it takes animators 24 frames to do. And so they literally have been studying his drawings for 80 years at this point or more. Uh, Hirschfeld was a fan of animation uh, and was worried when Snow White came out that when you put five fingers on a figure, uh, you really sort of kill the magic. He he liked the uh, the characters that weren't 
particularly real. Like the dwarfs in the seven, in Snow White were are, are in a sense more real to Hirschfeld and I think to many audiences than Snow White and Prince Charming are in the film. They look Snow White and Prince Charming look pretty wooden, but the dwarfs all seem to be full of life. Um, Disney animators like Hirschfeld understood that exaggeration could be used to make things look more real rather than uh, making it look fake. Uh, and this drawing of the American Ballet Theater really captures that. Um, we don't, you may not know each of the dancers, although there's many wonderful dancers uh, in this uh, drawing, uh, well, in this print, uh, yet it doesn't matter who they are. You really capture their sort of uh, lack of gravity in, the, in this piece. There are many other wonderful Hirschfeld drawings to look at. Um, there's also another great uh, um, original drawing in this uh, exhibition, the original production of Blythe Spirit with Clifton Webb and Mildred Natwick, uh, Lenore Corbett and Peggy Wood. This is an original ink on board drawing from 1941. And again, when Hirschfeld drew this, he didn't know it would become one of the sort of classic Noel Coward uh, plays that would still get produced uh, here 80 years later. Um, I love this drawing because Lenore Corbett and Peggy Wood are ghosts who uh, of uh, Clifton Webb's, uh, uh, they're, they're ghosts of the wives of Clifton Webb who come back to haunt him. And uh, Hirschfeld allows us to literally see through them. Uh, again, all in line, he captures it so uh, simply uh, and elegantly. He really captures the essence of this production. Um, that light blue wash was to indicate to the printers uh, at the New York Times where to put a bende screen, which were sort of different screens of, of dots um, to give the drawings texture. Um, but in any time else he's, that he's reproduced the drawing and he's included the drawing in a number of his books, um, he didn't need that texture in there. It was something that was very common in the 1940s, but we don't use it today. If you want to see more Hirschfeld drawings, you can go to alhirschfeldfoundation.org. There you can look up any drawing that Hirschfeld did by uh, performer, production, publication, date, theater season, year. You can learn about uh, uh, exhibitions of Hirschfeld's work or spotlights on different drawings uh, that we do or exhibitions that are happening all around the world. Um, you can also hear more about Hirschfeld in upcoming events here at the Harmony Club. On Sunday, November 7th, uh, there is going to be the only place on the planet Earth that you can open up a Sunday paper uh, on uh, and find Hirschfeld drawings and look for Nina's will be here at the Harmony Club, where there'll be a special newspaper section that's made exclusively for the Harmony Club that'll be filled with Her Hirschfeld drawings. Um, and of course, featuring his daughter's name, Nina, which he has hidden in, in his work since 1945 when she was born. Uh, he did it as a prank for his friends and family. Uh, he was a very proud father. Uh, the show that he was drawing took place in a circus. And on the back of the, in the, in in the background of the drawing, he had a, a circus posters on the wall of half man, half woman, world's strongest man. And then he had a baby reading a book and he put Nina the Wonder Child. And uh, it was a little giggle for his friends and families. And the next week he found another way to hide her name in a drawing. 
uh, not as sophisticated as what we see today, but it was it was different ways to do it. And he did it for a couple of weeks, and he thought it was a lot of fun, but he thought the joke had run its course, and he stopped doing it. And he got a tremendous amount of mail. And he looked at the pile of mail, and he said, you know, it would be easier to keep including Nina's in the drawings than answer the mail. And he thought people would get tired of this, uh, what he would call eventually a national insanity. But it turns out that every time he tried to stop it, the pile of mail got bigger. And he said he learned the hard way to make sure he included her name in the drawing before he included his name because nobody was looking for his name. Uh, it would take on a life of its own. Uh, it, it would uh, The Defense Department used Hirschfeld drawings to help train bombardiers to identify their targets uh, on maps. Uh, and later on, uh, a University of Pennsylvania professor got a $60,000 grant in part to study Nina's and Hirschfeld drawings, but he was using them to train doctors to see things in x-rays that may not be immediately apparent, like breast cancer tumors. When uh, in 1960, a reader wrote into the New York Times to uh, uh, extol the virtues of Hirschfeld's drawings and saying how wonderful they were and how they captured the, the, the real character of the shows. Um, but she concluded by saying, um, could you help me out and tell us how many Ninas are in a drawing? Because sometimes I find three and my husband finds four and we don't know who's right. Well, the publisher of the New York Times who had received this letter passed it on to Hirschfeld and said, it's a good idea. You should figure out some way to do it. So after that time, Hirschfeld started to put a number next to his name when there was more than one Nina to tell you how many Ninas to look for. And as he was drawing, uh, uh, the Ninas would come out organically, at least when I knew him. I spent 13 years visiting him almost every week, sometimes twice a week, in his studio, cataloging everything he had done. And I spent many, many uh, hours and weeks uh, in the studio while he was drawing. And they would come out organically. Uh, you know, he's working on the folds of a skirt, and all of a sudden a Nina would appear, or somebody's hair. Um, he wouldn't think about it in advance. It would just happen. But at the end of the drawing, he would have to look for all the Ninas and make sure that he got the number right. Because if he got the number wrong, that was another excuse for people to send him a lot of mail. Uh, so that's an event you definitely want to come to. Bring your children uh, and your grandchildren. And if they don't know about looking for Ninas, this is a great opportunity to uh, involve them in a tradition that has been going on for close to 100 years. Um, in December, we hope to have uh, uh, several holiday events. Um, if you want to learn more about uh, uh, Hirschfeld, as I said, alhirschfeldfoundation.org will give you uh, a great education. And if you're not aware, all the works in this exhibition are available for sale. And uh, there is a brochure that shows all the works, and there is a separate page with all the prices. 10% um, of the proceeds stay at the Harmony Club for the preservation fund, and the rest go to support the nonprofit Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And what the Hirschfeld Foundation does is to promote uh, the visual and dramatic arts. And primarily what we do now is uh, work with a, an arts curriculum that was created by the New York City Board of Education solely based on Hirschfeld's life and work. And we've been taking it to schools across the country who have no arts education.
So each purchase that you make uh, at the, uh, the Harmony Club not only helps the club, but it will help a student uh, to get uh, arts in their education. Because what, what every study has shown is that a student that has arts in their education is not only a better student, but a better citizen and is more engaged with the world altogether. So uh, thank you for the time. This has been a special prod broadcast of the Hirschfeld Century. You can subscribe to the Hirschfeld Century podcast on iTunes, uh, or you can find them on our website at alhirschfeldfoundation.org slash podcasts, and that's with an S at the end. Thanks a lot, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the club.